Good morning. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, as our main text for this morning. So if you have your Bible still handy, would you turn to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, and we'll beginning, uh, begin reading at verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way on to you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And may God, the Holy Spirit, once again grant us the grace to understand the text before us. A few Sundays ago, we began the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, and called that first message, The Model Church. The Model Church. We gave it that title because the little newly formed church was a model church and a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. We saw that there were three things in particular which made this little body of believers at Thessalonica an example to all the churches elsewhere. Specifically, it was their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Then in the second message, uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at chapter 2 and saw how Paul was the model servant and what his expected reward was. We focused in on four particular aspects of his servanthood, if we might use such a word. Number one, his nurse-like and fatherly care for them, as seen in his suffering and affliction for their sakes. Number two, 
his purity of motives, and number three, his blameless character, which was to be their example, and finally, number four, his anticipated reward, which was a crown of rejoicing. The apostle greatly delighted in these new believers at Thessalonica and gave thanks to God for them constantly because, as he says in chapter 2, verse 13, when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. Then as the chapter draws to an end, the Apostle Paul expresses his great desire to see them once again, but that because of the hindrances of Satan, he would not be able to do so at this time. Yet he reminds them that they are his reward, his crown of rejoicing, and that there is a time coming that they will meet each other once again face to face at the Lord's return. This morning, Lord willingly, uh, Lord willing, I would like to look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 13 of 1 Thessalonians, and examine all 13 verses if possible. And so I've entitled this third message, The Model Brother. The Model Brother. We read in the second verse of this chapter that Timothy was sent to Thessalonica, to this little church to establish them, that is, to build them up and to comfort them. And as we examine the chapter more closely, we will notice just how much the Apostle Paul had invested in Timothy and how much Paul had counted on Timothy to help him out of out in his ministry. And so we might say justifiably that Timothy was the model brother in Christ. Paul begins this chapter with, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. The thing that was always first and foremost in Paul's mind was the faith of the brethren. He mentions faith no less than five times in this chapter. We recall the words of the apostle when he later writes in Hebrews eleven six, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to be saved. Without faith, it is impossible to do the work of the Lord and to accomplish great miracles. Remember that Paul is in Corinth when he is writing this epistle. Because of extenuating circumstances, it was impossible for him to be with this little body of new believers whom he loved so very much. 
He was deeply concerned about their faith. He knew that they needed to be fed, to be nurtured, to be protected. And there they were in Thessalonica without a master or a mature minister of the gospel. Paul was nearly 200 miles away from them. He did not know how their faith was progressing or maturing. There were no telephones so that he could inquire. The mail was not very efficient. There was no two-day service. He could not read about them in the daily newspapers because there were none. So he did the next best thing. If he could not go himself, he would send someone else, someone whom Paul knew could do the work that was needed to be done. And that someone was Timothy. While Paul labored with the new believers elsewhere, Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica to establish them in the faith and to comfort them concerning their afflictions and persecutions. Now, who was Timothy? Why had the Apostle Paul chosen him? The scriptures do give us some insight into Timothy's background. We know, for instance, that the first recorded meeting between Paul and Timothy was in Acts 16, 1-5. It was in Derby and Lystra that Paul met Timothy. The record shows that Timothy was already a disciple in Acts 16, 1, during Paul's return to Derby. Previously, in Acts 14, we read about Paul's first visit to Derby and Lystra. After his preaching there, the Jews from Antioch had reached the scene and organized the people into stoning Paul at Lystra. He had been left there for dead. Fortunately, Paul revived and his brethren helped him to depart to Derby, where he again preached the gospel and taught many. This is when Paul may have encountered Timothy for the very first time and converted him during his first visit to Derby or Lystra. When Paul returned to Derby the second time, he met Timothy there again, Acts 16.1. Timothy had already developed a good report as a disciple, and Paul was impressed by him, and so he chose him to go with him. But Timothy's father had been a Greek, and therefore Timothy had not been circumcised. Because of his mixed parentage, his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, the Jews might find some serious offense in his uncircumcision. So Paul had this young man circumcised in order that Timothy's work amongst the Jews would have maximum effectiveness. Also prior to his conversion, Timothy had been faithfully raised and nurtured in the Old Testament scriptures by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, as we're told in 2 Timothy 1.5. Thus, Timothy gained his first knowledge of the truth. But it was not until he met the apostle that he became converted, receiving Christ as the promised Messiah. 
That is why Paul calls Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4.17, my beloved son and faithful in the Lord. And then in 1 Timothy 1.2, mine own son in the faith. And then in 2 Timothy 1.2, my dearly beloved son. It was through Paul's ministry that Timothy was saved and by consequence became Paul's son in the faith. But notice that in his epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul refers to Timothy as our brother. Though Timothy was much younger than Paul, and his gifts less than the apostles, and his rank lower than an apostle, Paul nonetheless gives him the honor of a spiritual equal, in graciously introducing him as our brother. Though Paul was an apostle and Timothy was but an evangelist, yet he calls him his brother. This is another example of Paul's graciousness and desire to honor his brethren. He introduces Timothy as his equal. But not only was he his his brother in Christ, but a minister of God also, which speaks to us about Timothy's calling. There are those who are called to become ministers of God, and there are those who presume to become ministers of God. There is a vast difference, you see. When a man presumes to become a minister of the gospel, he lacks the seal of divine preparedness. And so as he aspires to this terrible responsibility, he does so all in his own strength. He studies hard in his own strength. He labors hard in his own strength, and he achieves results in his own strength. And often very good things may be positively achieved. God may even use this man's ministry to achieve some good things from it. But when it is all said and done, it was not what he was called to do. But if a man is called to the ministry by God, then God is certain to supply that calling with gift and with power, because such a calling requires spiritual power in light of the fierce battles that will be faced. And Timothy was called to the ministry. He had a divine gift from God himself. He was an evangelist, and his gift was that of evangelism, and thus he was ordained of God as a minister of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul later writes to Timothy about his gift, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. We later discover what that gift was. It was evangelism. Paul refers to it in 2 Timothy 4.5 in a way of encouragement. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. And thirdly, Paul introduces Timothy as our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Not only was he a brother, 
and a minister of God, but he was also a fellow laborer. This speaks of his work. Though his gift was evangelism and perhaps his other talents different from Paul's, they were nevertheless co-laborers in the gospel. Their purpose was one and the same, to win the lost and to build up the saints in their most holy faith. Sometimes Timothy would labor alongside the apostle. At other times he would be sent away by the apostle to do a work which was needed to be done. But whether with the apostle Paul or away from the apostle Paul, Timothy labored in the same vineyard. He suffered similar persecutions and afflictions, and his young heart may have even been more prone to discouragement than the Apostle Paul's. But all of Paul's co-laborers, Timothy was the only one who stuck by his side until the very end. In his very last ep epistle in Second Timothy, Paul writes to his trusted co-laborer, to come to him in prison and to bring Paul's cloak and his beloved parchments because his, that is Paul's time of departure, was at hand. Also, in the second verse, we see what role Timothy was to fulfill in the church at Thessalonica. He was to establish or to build up the new body of believers in their faith and to comfort them concerning their faith. Verses 3 to 5. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye knew. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent, on to, uh, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. There were two things which could adversely affect the new believers at Thessalonica. Two things. Two things which could really test their faith and possibly caused them great discouragement. And the first of these was in verse 3. And so what the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to do was to first of all encourage them in this area. Don't be moved. Don't be discouraged and lose heart. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that you're not saved or that God doesn't care for you because you are suffering such difficulties. Remember that when Paul and Silas were with you, when they first ministered the gospel to you, remember the hardships that they suffered. Remember their persecutions and afflictions. Remember how they taught you that you too would suffer similar things. For, as Paul would later write in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Peter has the same thought in 1 Peter 1.7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious 
than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then later on in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, Peter writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. To the contrary, these persecutions should be an indication to you, Thessalonian believers, that you are in Christ and are suffering these afflictions for his sake. And so Paul wanted Timothy to once again encourage them in this area that they not let affliction cause them to waver in their faith. And the second thing which would really test their faith and possibly cause them despair if they were not properly prepared is found in verse 5, the tempter, Satan. After all, that is his main purpose, isn't it? To tempt believers to sin and to test their faith, to lose heart, to doubt, to give up. This great adversary and father of all lies would like nothing better than to destroy a young believer's testimony. He is very subtle and deceitful, uttering and untiring, always looking for opportunities. And what a better time to plant deceit and discouragement or despair, but when things are going badly, so to speak, when the body is threatened with physical harm, when deprived of sleep and food and the necessities of life, when would be a better time than that to come in subtly and point an accusing finger at God? Does God really care about you? Would he allow you to suffer all of this if he really cared? How do you know that you really belong to him when all of these terrible things are happening to you? Does all of this sound familiar? There is an interesting connection to be made here. It wasn't until Jesus went to the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, when the tempter appeared to test our Lord. When our Lord was most vulnerable physically, he was hungry, thirsty, and tired, is when the tempter struck. But how did our Lord respond? He responded with the word of God, with a spiritual weapon. And so too here, Paul would have Timothy arm the Thessalonians with the word of God in preparation for that possibility. 
and Timothy, being a minister of the gospel, would know how to properly arm this body of new believers. But all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, we are told in Romans 8.28, don't they? And how delighted Paul was when Timothy came back to him with good news. And though Paul still suffered afflictions and persecutions while he was in Corinth, these good tidings from the church of Thessalonica, verses 6 and 7, made his afflictions bearable. He was comforted by this church's spiritual growth and the fact that all his labor was not in vain. God was at work in a marvelous way. This all put new life, new vigor, new energy into Paul. He was able to continue the work with a renewed spirit. That is why he was able to say so simply, yet so beautifully in verse 8, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Notice the effect that this good news had on the Apostle Paul. It incited him to even more prayer, for he witnessed that God was marvelously at work here. He therefore gives God thanks, first of all, for all of them, just as he did in chapter 1. There was joy in the heart of the Apostle, after hearing about this church's condition. Not that there was no joy in his heart before he knew of their condition. With Paul, there was always the joy of the Lord in his heart, for that was his constant strength. But I take it here to mean that this news just added new joy to the joy of the Lord that was already there, so that it had an overflowing effect. He could scarcely contain himself, and so he burst into praise and thanksgiving to God. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to have such men today watching over our churches. Men who poured themselves out for Christ and for the brethren. But then we notice that Paul not only gives thanks to God in his prayers for the Thessalonians, but he also makes supplication on their behalf as well. Verses 10 to 13. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The first thing which he asks of God is to see them face to face again. Now you will notice he says that we might see your face. That word might suggests possibility 
not probability. There might be circumstances that might, might make this impossible because since God is sovereign, he might not find it to be the best thing for Paul under the circumstances for the moment. Paul, rather than commanding the Lord, as so many Christians do today, Paul asks or petitions the Lord for his requests. There is a vast difference between how Paul prayed and how some teach to pray today. There are certain things God will never grant us, no matter how much we may command him in the name of Jesus. Do you see? Paul's prayers were always according to thy will, O Lord. The second request was that we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That is, that we might be granted the opportunity to build you up, to encourage you in your new faith. The Thessalonians were still considered to be babes in Christ. There were yet many things, many doctrines that they still needed to be taught. Paul had a burden to do just that. And, as we have seen, God honored that prayer. Though Paul himself did not see the Thessalonians face to face in this case, Timothy did. Though Paul did not have the opportunity to perfect or build them up, Timothy did. Then in verses 12 and 13, Paul prays specifically for the Thessalonians. The previous verse dealt with prayer on his behalf and his fellow laborers. But here in verse 12, 13, he prays on behalf of the Thessalonians for their spiritual prosperity. First, that they might increase in love and abound in love, not only one to another, but also toward all men. This is the commandment of God that we love one another. This is also that distinguishing mark of a believer. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Often we as believers fail to realize we are to love even those who are not Christians. Our Savior loved us while we were yet sinners, lost, strangers to the grace of God, at enmity with God. But he loved us, bought us, and now he keeps us. How can we ever win the lost without that same love for them? I knew of a Christian family who would not visit or even associate with another member of the family because that other member was not saved. How grievesome that must be to the Lord and how destructive such a testimony is for the Lord. Oh, may this be our prayer too, that we all here this morning increase and abound in love one to another and toward all men. The second thing he prays for on their behalf is that God may Establish their hearts unblameable in holiness before God. 
It is every believer's responsibility to live in holiness, to live obediently before God, to seek after righteousness. But unfortunately, it is not every believer's desire to do that. We as believers are to be holy for he is holy. This speaks of personal sanctification, which is different from spiritual sanctification. When we are saved, God does his part on the spiritual side. In that respect, all believers stand on equal ground. But then there is experiential sanctification. The believer personally setting himself apart from the world and setting himself apart for God. Paul was separated unto God. He was a powerful tool in the hands of a mighty God. This is that growing in grace and knowledge of God. Some Christians grow very quickly spiritually. Others seem to stagnate, remain carnal. And Paul's prayer was that they might be established in the holiness of character when the Lord appears, that they, so to speak, would not be ashamed at his coming. The apostle will then, in the next chapter, cover more specifically what their walk should be like. And Lord willing, we'll look at that chapter in some future date. But now, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you all this question. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns with all his saints in glory, will you be with him? If so, that is good. And if not, why not? He came to die for you and for me, so that the penalty for your sins and my sins might be settled once and for all, that we might be reconciled to God in perfect fellowship. The work has been fully done on Calvary's cross. His precious blood has been shed to meet God's just demand. But it will only be shed once. There is no other sacrifice to be made. Won't you receive him now as your sin-bearer if you haven't done so already. Why not trust in him at his word? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, 31. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious book called the Epistle to the Thessalonians. We thank thee, Lord, how the Apostle Paul loved his flock, how he cared for them, how he nurtured them, and how he prayed for them. Oh, that we might have this kind of care for our brethren, as the Apostle Paul did. And so, Father, we pray thy blessings upon each and every one here this morning, and we ask that thou would part us safely to our homes again. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee to bring us all together again around his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it always in his name. 
and for his glory. Amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Natural. Yeah.